Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. You're listening to The National as published on Friday the 4th of February 2022. News. Ofcom sent open letter as Ruth Davidson BBC complaint still not dealt with by Greg Russell, journalist. A BBC radio listener who complained about an interview with former Tory leader in Scotland, Baroness Ruth Davidson, has written a 1,300-word open letter to regulator Ofcom, which is still investigating his complaint, almost a year after the interview was broadcast. John Parker said the interview on The World at One last February 24th, was so ill-informed and unbalanced, he just had to complain about it. He said it was ostensibly meant to inform listeners about the thorny issues surrounding upcoming evidence from Alex Salmond to the committee investigating the Scottish Government's handling of allegations against him, of which he was later cleared. However, Parker said, Much of it seemed a tangled mishmash of uninformed, unchallenged innuendos and allegations against the Scottish Government principally from Ruth Davidson. It was almost impossible to salvage from it much idea of what was actually going on, beyond a vague notion that Nicola Sturgeon and her SNP lot were up to no good. Irritated, I did a modest amount of digging and found that there was a very different perspective to be had on the matter, had the BBC report trouble to maintain proper balance by addressing it. I made an MP3 of the report and transcribed it. Then I complained to the BBC. Parker said that in 12 plus minutes of coverage, more than five had been given over to an effectively unchallenged Davidson, who made a series of insinuations couched as questions and hypotheticals over the Scottish Government, civil servants, the independence of the prosecution service, if there was corruption in the workings of the Scottish Government and whether the FM misled Parliament. Parker said Davidson did not exactly say what had happened. It's only because I dug around that I knew she was partly referring to the redaction of some of Salmon's published evidence by the Prosecution Service and I knew it's quite possible it was redacted not as part of a sinister cover-up but because it could lead to jigsaw identification of victims. And when she suggested that the head of the prosecution service was compromised by being a member of the Scottish Government, it was only because I dug around that I knew that the UK Attorney General is likewise a member of the UK Government and nobody jumps up and down about that. And that further, if you ask the lawyers of the prosecution service, they would tell you it's irrelevant since they act independently anyway. He said Davidson went on to wonder whether Sturgeon had misled Parliament, but he found that all that was at stake was a three-day discrepancy in the date she gave for when she first heard the allegations, which made no material difference. However, oblivious to such considerations, Davidson had called for a judge-led inquiry, and when Parker complained that nobody from the SNP or Scottish Government had been invited to respond, the BBC complaints team bizarrely replied, 
Our Scotland editor, Sarah Smith, was on afterwards so that she could put Ruth Davidson's interview in the correct context and give more information regarding the SNP view on this. Parker's forensic analysis noted that Smith did not mention the SNP and instead, through indirect speech, had relayed complaints and allegations of a cover-up by Salmond and others at odds with the Scottish Government, coming very close to saying that with both opposition parties voicing concerns, there was probably something in them. There are three levels in the BBC complaints process and Parker's complaint was rejected by them all, but not before he was treated but not before he was treated to some eye-popping justifications for the broadcast, one of which was, Our aim is simply to provide enough information for listeners to make up their own minds. Parker asked, Really? So even with the Scottish Government's perspective entirely left out, they'll come to a balanced view? His complaint went to Ofcom last April 25th, after being dismissed by the BBC. With time passing and no progress, Repeated prodding by the National got an assurance that something would appear on their website on August the 31st, said Parker. Nothing did. On October the 11th, their complaint was listed under Investigations Launched. Now, nearly a year after I first complained to the BBC, and almost 10 months since I put the complaint to Ofcom, there is still nothing. He wondered if Ofcom's delay could be because the scope of its investigation is broader than simply one programme and pointed out that BBC Editorial Guidelines, paragraph 4.3.21, note, Special considerations apply during the campaign periods for elections and referendums, as well as the run-up to campaign periods in some cases, involving greater sensitivity with regard to due impartiality in all output genres. Parker added, bearing in mind that the uncontested insinuations included institutional corruption and misleading Parliament, a resigning offence, and that the programme was broadcast just some two months before the Holyrood elections, how much is there really to consider? A spokesperson for Ofcom told The National, We are working as quickly as possible to complete our investigation. This article was by Greg Russell. You're listening to The National as published on Friday the 4th of February 2022. Politics. Christina McKelvey urges Scots to attend screening appointments after cancer treatment by Sarah Pacciaroni, multimedia reporter. A Scottish Government minister has spoken about her experience going through cancer treatment and urged all Scots not to delay their screening appointments. Christina McKelvey was diagnosed with breast cancer in January and underwent an operation just weeks later. The Minister for Equalities and Older People has now completed her treatment and is preparing to return to work at Holyrood in a few weeks. McKelvey paid tribute to the NHS on World Cancer Day. The health service pick you up and carry you through and I could not fault any step in my treatment programme, she told Radio Borders News. Any questions I had, any concerns I had, knowing it was all in safe hands was very helpful at a time in your life when you're facing your mortality and you're wondering what's going to happen to yourself and your family. She added, My first post-50 mammogram that picked this up was December the 30th. I got a letter maybe three weeks later to come in the next week and then my first surgery was March the 2nd. You can see how quickly the process kicks in. It's incredibly important that if you feel a lump or a bump, that you phone up and go for a check-up. I didn't feel anything. For more than 10 years, McKelvey was a champion for breast cancer charity Wear It Pink in the Scottish Parliament. She added, 
That's what I would encourage people to do. Don't be afraid. It's not sore or anything that will cause you any any real discomfort. But knowing that you are clear will make you feel really secure. And knowing if they do pick something up, they are picking something up as early as possible and getting that treatment plan into train as quickly as possible as well. McKelvey announced in February that she would be stepping aside from her role as minister for a then undisclosed medical condition. She added, I think I'll focus on the positives of getting back through that door and knowing there'll be smiles, hugs and tears, usually from me. It's not the worry about stepping back in, but the welcome I'll get and I will give other people because I'm desperate to see them again. I love hugs and during this whole process that's been difficult because of Covid I've had to protect myself, but I'm now quadruple vaccinated so I will be looking for some proper hugging from some of my pals because it's been a long time. This article was by Sara Pacioroni. From the National, Friday the 4th of February 2022. From the comment section, Public anger at Boris Johnson is about more than just Downing Street Covid parties. A comment piece by Gillian Mackay, Scottish Greens MSP. Even by the low standards of this Prime Minister, it's been a disgraceful week. Many of us had our heads in our hands when he tried to excuse away all of the parties and lockdown breaches at Downing Street, most of which had been reported by Sue Gray. It's hard to keep count of the allegations, but what is clear is that it's impossible to believe a word that the Prime Minister says. He seems totally incapable of telling the truth. First he said there were no parties, then he said there were social events that he didn't know were parties, and then he had his allies telling the media that he'd been ambushed by cake. But the real reason for the level of public anger is about more than just parties. It is about the individual sacrifices that so many have made and the trauma and pain that so many have endured. Across the country, there are people that have suffered physically and mentally from the pandemic. There are people who have lost family and were not able to go to funerals or say goodbye to loved ones. Every single parliamentarian will have heard stories of suffering from the communities because it was so widespread. Sugri's report is not the one she wanted to write. In fact, it was an update rather than a substantial report. The ongoing police investigation means that there are a lot of things and events she could not write about. Despite these limitations, what she did write was damning. She refers to a failure of leadership and a serious failure to observe the high standards expected by the public and behaviour that was hard to justify. This kind of contempt and disregard for the rules would be bad enough at any time, but during a pandemic, when we were all living under severe restrictions to protect ourselves and others, it is unforgivable. We all know vulnerable people who were put in danger by the Prime Minister's handling of the crisis. His government's approach to the pandemic was often too little, too late. From the beginning, the Tories were open at considering herd immunity, which would have put vulnerable people at greater risk than others. They delayed lockdown and support for workers and, as we know, the consequences have been devastating. The UK had one of the highest death rates of any country in Europe. NHS workers and other frontline workers put themselves in harm's way for the good of everyone else. It is frankly disgusting that while they were facing the harrowing reality of the pandemic, Downing Street was holding parties. The Prime Minister and his colleagues appear to have done everything they can to make things worse. They put the brakes on our recovery by mishandling the crisis so so badly 
and inflicting a cost of living crisis on the country. By ending the furlough scheme at the same time as introducing a regressive national insurance hike and cutting universal credit, they ensured that it would be the most vulnerable who were made to pay the price. All of this has been made much worse by a bad Brexit deal that people in Scotland have rejected time and time again. That is why it fills me with dread to think about who might come next. The bookmakers suggest that the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, is most likely to replace his leader. But would that be an improvement? He has been the cutter-in-chief and co-architect of the pandemic response. Boris Johnson must go, but her problems will not be solved by replacing one terrible Tory PM with another. Here in Scotland, we are getting on with the job of building a fair and green recovery. Last week saw the Scottish Parliament voting to support the first budget with Greens in government. It was a positive contrast from anything being offered by Westminster. Despite the tough backdrop and a 5% budget cut, we are doubling child payments to £20 a week, a step that will help our families on stretched incomes and go part of the way to mitigating the damage that has been done. We are investing in education and delivering £145 million for new teachers and classroom assistants. We are putting the climate first by boosting public transport and trebling funds for walking, cycling and wheeling infrastructure. On the same day that Sue Gray published her update, Scotland introduced free bus travel for everyone aged 22 and under. This is a positive and transformative change that will help the climate as well as household budgets. It will allow young people better access to travel to work, school or higher education and to visit friends and family. These are not just minor policy differences, they are indicative of a whole different approach to politics and how we believe people should be treated. There may be boozy parties and canopies at Downing Street, but here in Scotland we are getting on with the job of supporting our communities. If we are to ensure we reach our full potential, we need the powers to do so. With our devolved powers, we are delivering vital changes and with the full powers of an independent country, we can do even more. Scotland has asked a crossroads. The damage that has been done to our communities by the Tories is all too visible and so is the potential that is being held back. It doesn't need to be this way. We have the opportunity to build a fairer, greener, independent and hopeful future. It is an opportunity that we must seize. And that was a comment piece by Scottish Screams MSP Gillian Mackay. This article is from The National, date 4th February 2022, from the Culture section. James McAvoy says Scottish independence could be a fantastic thing. By Craig Meehan. Scottish actor James McAvoy has said Scottish independence could be a fantastic thing. The Hollywood star told The Guardian that independence needs to be done for the right reasons. The X-Men actor, who was raised in Drumchapel, said Scotland shouldn't define itself against its relationship with England. He suggested independence should win on its own merits, not just because a certain Prime Minister or government is bad. He said, The fact that Boris and his company of people who enjoyed a drink while they were telling everybody not to isn't necessarily something that will make me go, oh yes, Scottish independence, even though he is iconic of an educational and elitist class system that plays into Scottish independence massively. Independence 
could be a fantastic thing, but it needs to be done for the right reasons. Don't choose it just because we don't like Boris. Choose it because we want it. We can't just define ourselves by our relationship with England. I'm sick of that. McAvoy's comments came as Boris Johnson comes over increased pressure to resign over potentially law-breaking parties held in Downing Street throughout the COVID pandemic. The split actor said Partygate isn't hugely surprising to him, considering the current state of politics in the UK. I've been disappointed in our political system for decades, he said. So the fact that it's letting us down isn't a massive shocker. McAvoy deplored the type of politician the current UK system produces. He said, I think the system relentlessly produces people that disappoint. On Partygate, he said, we're not even asking that they be held to a higher standard and they can't even fucking do that. McAvoy has previously been more on the fence on independence. In a statement ahead of the 2014 vote, he said, I don't trust politicians at all and I don't really think that actors, i.e. professional liars, are the best people to be commenting and to be backing up other professional liars, i.e. politicians. I'll go with my country no, no matter what way they vote. I just hope that my country follows its heart and its gut rather than listening to redundant political debate. If you vote one way or another because you believe in some political promise, five or ten years from now, it's going to be a new guy in that chair with a different political agenda and you have voted to change your country forever because of a semi-permanent promise made by some guy who may or may not deliver. McAvoy said unification or separation will last forever. He continued, so I feel like it's actually got to be an emotional decision, not a political one. I know that's kind of strange and I'm not an anti-political person, but I feel that this decision should be a gut-led choice. That article was by Craig Meehan. This article is from The National, date 7th February 2022, from the News section. Campaigners to walk from Glasgow to Edinburgh over football gambling adverts. By Gregor Young. Campaigners calling for an end to all gambling advertising and sponsorship in football, a move which could impact on both Rangers and Celtic, are to walk between Scotland's two largest cities. More than 40 people affected by gambling, including recovering addicts and their families, are to take part in the 60-mile march between Edinburgh and Glasgow, which will end at the National Stadium Hampden Park in Glasgow. The event has been staged by The Big Step, an organisation set up by a former gambling addict who now wants to see the industry's involvement with football ended across the UK. The online betting site Defabet is the current Celtic shirt sponsor, while old firm rivals Rangers has the logo of the 32 red online casino firm on its shirts. The marchers will visit both clubs when in Glasgow on February 13th, before finishing their march at Hampden Stadium. The walk, which starts on Friday, will see campaigners visit a number of other clubs, meeting their representatives and also meet with some elected politicians. Starting in Edinburgh, 
Marchers will visit both Hibernian FC and City Rivals' hearts before heading on to other clubs including Livingston, Motherwell and Hamilton Academical. Kelly Field, one of those who will be taking part, said her online gambling addiction was fuelled by a relentless barrage of advertising. She said, at my worst, I wasn't eating or drinking properly. I felt suicidal at times and would gamble in the bathroom in secret. Explaining why she was taking part in her first march, she added, advertising and sponsorship in football and elsewhere makes people think that gambling is totally normal and safe when the reality is very different. Gambling kills and football must stop promoting it. I know of people who've taken their own life when they couldn't see any other way out. James Grimes, who founded The Big Step after being addicted to gambling for 12 years, said the organisation's latest event comes as we stand at a crucial moment. The UK government is reviewing the 2005 Gambling Act, with some rumours suggesting this could see betting firms banned from shirt sponsorship in the English Premier League. But the big step wants ministers to go further than this and end the promotion of gambling across all levels of football within the UK. Grimes said, Decision makers must put the health of young fans first and end all gambling ads in football. If they don't, We encourage every club and governing body in Scotland, including the ones we're visiting on this walk, to be brave and to ban gambling sponsorship and advertising before the government makes the decision for them. He added, we applaud Scottish football's recent move away from the gambling sponsorship of competitions. But there is much more to be done. This is a unique chance to be on the right side of history and we hope fans will help their club make this decision. That article was by Gregor Young. From the National, Monday the 7th of February 2022. From the comment section, George Caravan, why Axiom plans for public energy firm is deeply misconceived. By columnist George Caravan, oil is back although I suspect it never went away. A dramatic rise in energy prices is here to stay for at least a decade, so we better get used to it. The impact goes further than the bone-crushing hike in consumer gas bills we will all face come April. Higher energy costs will have a devastating impact on industry, causing major shifts in the global economy. Last week saw the first clear signs of the long-predicted collapse in equity share values. 2022 is going to be an economic roller coaster. One additional effect of the energy boom is that profits are zooming for the big oil and gas producers. This is a major argument for a special levy on those profits to help offset the burden on consumers. However, the mini boom in fossil fuel rewards, al- rewards also has implications for Scotland and the economics of independence. Last week, Shell revealed bumper profits of 2021 of $19 billion, up from only $5 billion the year before. Most of the increase came from shifting quantities of liquefied natural gas around the world to catch the highest market price. Shell is still big in North Sea gas production, although it has reduced its presence in the sector considerably as it went in search of cheaper supplies to exploit. Shell's boss, Ben Verburden, has criticised the idea of a windfall tax on the company's dosh as a bad idea 
because it will reduce the amount of money the company has to reinvest in both new energy supplies, the easy gas shortage, and transition to renewables. This is self-serving nonsense, and Van Borden knows it. Shell, like other oil monopolies, has more cash than it knows what to do with. As a result, Shell has announced it's going to give back $8.5 billion back to shareholders in a share buyback programme. It gave back $3.5 billion last year. That cash could and should be taxed in a windfall levy and put to better productive use in an independent Scotland. There are peculiarities about the current North Sea energy industry that need to be noted. Big global producers such as Shell have sold off a lot of their mature but far from exhausted gas fields in the sector to smaller, independent companies like Harbour Energy, which is headquartered in Edinburgh. In fact, Harbour is now the second biggest gas producer in the UK North Sea, after the French company Total. Third comes Spirit Energy, a German partnership with Centrica, itself the largest supplier of gas to the UK domestic market. This picture tells us that the bulk of the companies currently producing gas in the North Sea are unlikely to spearhead fresh investment in new fields. Instead, they will exploit existing supplies and pocket the proceeds. So there is little possibility of fresh supplies coming from the North Sea or Atlantic to alleviate the gas shortage that is bumping up the cost of your household bills. Given the squeeze on world coal production and the turn away from nuclear energy, gas has become the default energy source globally during the transition to renewables which means Scots, Brits and Europeans are going to pay through the nose for dwindling gas supplies from the North Sea or face that gas being shipped abroad. This situation raises major, existential questions for Scotland and the independence and environmental movements. The immediate issue is whether to take steps to increase North Sea gas production temporarily, in other words for the next decade, to minimise the price burden on ordinary folk. This move would give time for the transition to renewables to be completed, a point argued by both Alex Salmond and Jim Silvers. The arguments against are twofold. First, any step away from reducing fossil fuel production now will simply play into the hands of the oil monopolies who are disingenuously regarding their claims to have gone green. Second, any fresh nasty gas production will be exported or sold at world prices so the cost of UK consumers will not come down in any way. My, side, my rational side tells me we are stuck for at least a decade with insanely high energy prices. The 22 million UK households now facing a 54% hike in, in gas bills, plus the indeterminate cost and inconvenience of installing heat pumps, are likely to revolt. This could easily result in populist resistance to further measures necessary to combat climate change, that would be a political disaster. This impasse could have been avoided. Consumer energy prices are being distorted by things apart from the gas shortage. The nuclear lobby has persuaded both Labour and Tory governments to pad consumer electricity bills to provide hidden subsidies for new atomic power stations. The transmission of Scottish renewable electricity is deliberately taxed and the levy passed on to nuclear producers. These insane price distortions could be removed tomorrow cutting energy bills. However, that would still leave a time gap between the more renewable energy arriving and the current gas shortage. At the same time, global demand for energy is rising. 
nor are the technologies yet available to completely decarbonise. But if we need extra gas as a bridging fuel, then how do we stop companies such as Shell making obscene profits and returning the cash to greedy shareholders rather than investing in renewables? The obvious answer is some form of public intervention and supervision, which is why the SNP Green government's abandoning of its pledge to create a public energy corporation is so misconceived. The need for a public energy company, before and after independence, has nothing to do with being doctrinaire. We need to keep windfall energy returns from the North Sea in public hands and use that cash both to mitigate household costs and pump investment into renewables. A public energy body can do this as a partner with commercial companies. It does not need to deliver to need to do everything itself. But a public ownership stake is geared to exerting control over the direction and content of investment. We also need to reverse the recent disastrous auction by the county state Scotland of wind energy franchises in the North Sea to the big fossil fuel monopolies. As well as handing over yet more profits to these companies, the sale puts the development of renewables into the hands of the very people making a bundle out of gas. Why would these corporations risk to invest in wind if they can bank profits from gas without lifting a proverbial finger? I know the deal is subject to a lot of negotiations, but the First Minister will have long departed office before anyone discovers that the green energy monopolies have failed to deliver. Some in the green movement will argue, correctly, that unless the world weans itself off fossil fuels by the end of the current decade, then we will miss the CO2 reductions necessary to stabilise the climate. My concern is how to advance that agenda here in Scotland, where we have more than a whisker of a chance of actually influencing events politically. That requires Scottish independence. But to do what? We need a Scottish national energy company to take public command of the transition process. Anything else is wishful thinking. And that was a comment piece by George Caravan. From the National, Tuesday the 8th of February 2022. From the news section, Nicholas Sturgeon update. FM urged to stop COVID contact tracing by Gregor Young. The Scottish Tories are urging Nicola Sturgeon to scrap coronavirus contact tracing. The party is publishing a policy paper on Tuesday with one of the main recommendations to wind down Scotland's test and protect scheme. The Back to Normality document will call for the end of contact tracing in the coming months with funds instead redirected towards bolstering the NHS. Scottish Tories also said the performance of Test and Protect has declined in recent months, adding that the requirement for confirmatory PCR tests after a positive lateral flow test being dropped has made the scheme less useful. On January the 5th, the day before the change was made, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon urged Scots who received a positive lateral flow test to report the result online to begin the contact tracing process. We are urging the government to adopt a new, more targeted approach to COVID, said Tory health spokesman Dr Sandish Gohan. We would place a higher emphasis on protecting vulnerable groups and trusting the public, instead of blanket restrictions such as mandating face masks in classrooms. One of the key proposals is replacing Test and Protect. It was incredibly useful in earlier stages of the pandemic, but it has become increasingly redundant in recent months. 
We are nearing the point where Test and Protect is no longer an effective use of scarce NHS resources. As we start to move beyond the pandemic, our approach must adapt to fit the new situation. The document will be released on the same day as the First Minister. It's just to provide an update to the MSPs on the state of the pandemic. A Scottish Government spokesman said that Test and Protect continues to deliver an effective public health function despite record numbers of cases. As case numbers have risen, more people are being contact traced through digital channels. Contact tracing resource continues to be targeted to best protect public health, including ensuring our objectives of protecting the vulnerable and targeting high-risk settings, the spokesman said, who added the Scottish Government would publish its strategy on how to deal with the coming stages of the pandemic later this month. Meanwhile, the Scottish Lib Dems called for more action on long Covid after recent figures showed about 1% of people who reported having suffered lasting effects of the virus being referred to a government-funded support scheme. Following an exchange between the First Minister and leader Alex Cole Hamilton, Chase Heart and Stroke Scotland, the charity who delivered the service, said it was a missed opportunity that GPs could not automatically refer to the scheme. Ahead of the First Minister's statement, Cole Hamilton said, The charity want to see the First Minister ensure that the automatic referrals are put in place across the country so that sufferers don't miss out. She should use her statement to announce those changes. The Scottish Government spokesman commented, While data sharing agreements are a matter for NHS boards and organisations that they are collaborating with, and cannot be mandated by the Scottish Government, we have offered our support to facilitate engagement between NHS boards and Chest Heart and Stroke Scotland to help overcome any issues. And that was an article by Gregor Young. You're listening to The National as published on Tuesday the 8th of February 2022. Comment. Kirsty Alsop proves the need to ban property ladder talk in the UK by Shona Craven, columnist and community editor. Early noughties Channel 4 has a lot to answer for, doesn't it? Not only did it inflict upon us Jimmy Carr via such highbrow offerings as Your Face or Mine and 100 Worst Britons, it also made Kirsty Alsop into the kind of personality from whom the Sunday Times can still milk thousands and thousands of hate clicks more than two decades on from her TV debut. Back in 2003, the channel declared Tony Blair the worst Briton of all, with Katie Price, then still going by her glamour model named Jordan, rather unfairly ranking behind him, just ahead of Margaret Thatcher. If anyone's thinking, well, Jordan's Eurovision Song Contest audition must count as a crime against humanity, please note that it happened two years later. If the countdown of villains was to be revived today, it might well feature D-listers from the Channel 4 stable who presume to tell young people what joys they should sacrifice and people in general that they're Philistines if they can't take a joke about the Holocaust. But while it's easy to mock Alsop for suggesting young people today are spoiled when she herself was born into privilege and didn't have to scrape together a flat deposit, it's important not to miss the bigger picture. The very headlines screaming in outrage about Allsop's comments, which appear to suggest that anyone can get on the property ladder if they sacrifice enough, perpetuate the kind of distorted thinking that got the UK into such a mess to begin with. 
According to the BBC, the phrase property market first appeared in the Times in 1981, and while it might seem like a descriptive term, it's actually a prescriptive one and a specifically British one. It's hard to measure the impact of growing up, as my generation did, being told that getting on the ladder wasn't just a way to obtain housing security, but ultimately a way for those with a bit of money to get a lot more money for nothing. The Channel 4 show Property Ladder launched when I was 20 years old and dipping my toe into the rental market for the first time. I lapped it up. Its host, Sarah Beanie, took a pleasingly no-nonsense approach to steering amateur property developers through their first refurbishments. Time and time again, she would caution against painting walls in garish colours or splashing out on lavish taps, knobs and light fittings, only to have these naive fools steam ahead regardless. It was great telly, a race against time with plenty of setbacks along the way and sheepish confessions that the budget had spiralled out of control but what it ultimately lacked was any sense of peril. Week in, week out, Beanie would grit her teeth at the end of the show and tell a clueless couple that their property had increased in value by a significant sum, despite them paying scant attention to her sound advice. In the end, it didn't really matter what they did, because the market was so buoyant that three quarters of each episode could have shown them watching Magnolia paint dry and they would still have turned a handsome profit by the time the adverts rolled. Sometimes at the end we'd be told they weren't going to sell the property after all, but instead rent it out as the economics of this made more sense. Now they were on the ladder, the world was their oyster. As long as someone was willing to pay the rent, they were on their way to bigger and better things, a portfolio even. How marvellous for them, what could possibly go wrong? Well, a housing crash of course. In 2009, the show was retitled Property Snakes and Ladders, but it seems viewers weren't quite so keen to watch folk grapple with the reality of negative equity and rejected mortgage applications. This series was the last. None of this was Sarah Beanie's fault, of course. I suspect she longed to demonstrate that most of these dafties didn't have what it takes to be real property developers. But the show undoubtedly distorted how my peers and I viewed property. When I began searching for a flat to buy, my parents cautioned against doing so too early. What if I decided to move elsewhere? No problem, I replied. I would just rent out my property until I either returned or put down roots elsewhere. Staying on the ladder was key. It was non-negotiable. The fact that my future actions might prevent someone else from buying a home did not even occur to me. There's no easy solution to the current UK housing crisis, but this week's backlash against Allsop for chiding youngsters suggests attitudes may be shifting. Can a ban on property ladder talk be the next step, please? As the Sunday Times wryly pointed out in the last paragraph of its recent story, the average young person would have to forgo little luxuries like Netflix and take away coffees for several decades just to get a fingertip on the bottom rung. What Allsop doubtless considers an encouraging nudge is experienced as a kick in the teeth. It's hard to imagine the targets of her preachy remarks would take pleasure from the boom-time property shows I lapped up in my twenties. Times have moved on, and our language should too. This article was by Shona Craven. Recorded from The National on the 8th of February 2022, from the Culture section. Summer of celebration for Scottish art community as Covid restrictions ease, by the National News Desk. Amateur artists from across the country are invited to submit work for a new exhibition. 
Scottish Creations is a cross-art form initiative inspired by Scotland's Year of Stories 2022, aimed at re-establishing a connection with audiences after COVID-19 while sharing the stories of communities and individuals. It is being developed by Scottish Ensemble in partnership with Charity Creative Lives. Artists are being asked to respond to the theme of storytelling through a range of art forms from visual art, sculpture, poetry, creative writing and photography to drawing, tapestry and wood carving and everything in between. A selection of creative works will then be displayed at a pop-up exhibition at each venue on Scottish Ensemble's May Tour supplemented by a digital exhibition, where works such as music, film, animation and soundscapes will feature. Scottish Creations will take place in May this year at venues in Mull, Skye, Inverness, Shetland, Aberdeen and Dundee, with Scottish Ensemble performing a programme of iconic music, including a new commission by Ali Robertson at each location. Each performance will be followed by a more communal session showcasing the diversity of Scottish Ensemble's music making and featuring smaller chamber groups and a broad range of music genres. Audiences will be invited to explore the Creative Lives exhibition before their performance and during the interval with submissions shared via a digital exhibition during and after the tour. Creative Lives Chief Executive Robin Simpson said the initiative was an amazing opportunity to highlight the important role creative cultural activity plays in local communities in every part of Scotland. The pandemic has reinforced her creative expression, socialising with friends and neighbours and really appreciating the places where we live and work form a vital part of our lives and an essential component of our well-being, he said. This project will be a joyous celebration of Scotland, its people and their creativity in Scotland's Year of Stories. Scottish Ensemble Chief Executive Jenny Jameson said they'd been inspired by the resilience of the amateur art sector during the pandemic. She added, With Scottish creations we want to celebrate and showcase the huge amount of creative talent we know exists across the length and breadth of the country. That article was by the National News Desk. From the National, Tuesday the 8th of February 2022, from the Sports Section. Charlie Nicholas makes Ange Postacoglu stroke Brendan Rogers' Celtic claim as he details emotive meeting with Parkhead boss by Aidan Smith. Charlie Nicholas has detailed his recent meeting with Celtic boss Ange Postacoglu and hailed the Aussie manager for his warm embrace. Postacoglu moved to Celtic in the summer and has hit the ground running, winning the League Cup as well as leading his team to the top of the Premiership table. Nicholas has been hugely impressed with the impact of Postacoglu and he has hailed the Hoops manager turning things round at his former club. Detailing a recent meeting with the Parkhead gaffer, Nicholas told the Daily Express, I actually bumped into Ange in Glasgow's West End last week when he was out with his wife and agent. I was out for a coffee with Brian Dempsey. Ange gave me a genuine warm hug which was much appreciated. I probably haven't been welcomed by anyone of that stature at Celtic since the Tommy Burns days. We had a brief five-minute conversation, during which I thanked him for the job he is doing at my old club and what he is building. Everyone knows I have had issues with the Parkhead hierarchy for several years because of my personal opinions. They probably felt I wasn't pro the Celtic board. I am not pro or a patronising member of the Celtic Ownership Club. Ange is a strong individual and won't bow down to any chief executive or owner. He's his own man and has a clear vision of what he wants to do. When I asked him about the signing of Matt O'Reilly, he simply pointed to his agent and said, this is my agent and that is what I advised him to do. 
Ange goes with his instincts and his passion. It's a bit old school. He is sorting out the issues and just getting on with the job. Nicholas has told Celtic fans to expect more success this season, especially after last week's win over Rangers. He added, What Postacoglu is building at Celtic is even more exciting than the team Brendan Rodgers had. I know some people will argue with me because Rodgers won treble after treble and also had that invincible season. There's no denying Rodgers did take Celtic on, but he inherited a team that was used to winning and were already champions. His Celtic side was miles ahead of everybody else, including Rangers. What is happening with Ange just now is more exciting. This article was by Aidan Smith. From the National, Tuesday the 8th of February 2022, from the Sports section. Ex-Celtic ace Lee Griffiths joins Falkirk on short-term deal by Ewan Payton. Lee Griffiths has joined Falkirk on a short-term deal. The League One outfit have sealed the former Celtic attacker on a contract until the end of the season. The attacker was without a club last week after being freed from Celtic at the end of the January window. He would then go on to reject a short-term deal at Dundee, where he spent the first half of the season on loan. Martin Rennie's side were revealed to have offered the 31-year-old a contract worth £1,500 per week, and Griffiths has chosen to sign for Falkirk to help bolster their promotion bid. However, their only realistic shot will come via the playoffs, with Cove Rangers a whopping 22 points in front of their rivals. Falkirk have been in Scotland's third tier for four seasons out of dropping out of the Championship. This article was by Ewan Payton. From the National, Tuesday the 8th of February 2022, from the Sports Section. Rangers hero Ali McCoist lifts lid on Shea Given's Celtic taunting by Ewan Payton. Rangers hero Ali McCoist has revealed that it wasn't just Chris Boyd who was in the firing line of Shea Given after last week's Old Firm derby. Celtic ran out comfortably 3-0 winners at Parkhead last Wednesday, thanks to goals from Rayo Hatate and Lille Abada. Days after ex-Jers striker Boyd had wound up former Republic of Ireland goalkeeper about the arrival of Aaron Ramsey at Ibrox, Given brutally got his own back. Lauding Celtic for their momentous victory, Given told Boyd to keep your chins up. And McCoist revealed this morning that he was also on Given's hit list in the aftermath of the Derby clash. He told TalkSport, I'll tell you the kind of guy he, Given, is right. He was first to send me a message after the recent Celtic versus Rangers game, and it will give you an indication of what type of guy he is. And by the way, Robbie Keane was second, the two of them, couldn't get into me quick enough. That article was by Ewan Payton. From The National, on Wednesday the 9th of February. Politics. Health Minister stayed at an in-person meeting despite positive Covid test. An article written by Angus Cochran, multimedia journalist. A Tory health minister has apologised for continuing an in-person meeting with bereaved parents despite knowing she'd tested positive for Covid-19. Gillian Keegan announced on Twitter that she was listening to three fathers who had tragically lost their daughters to suicide when she was notified of a positive lateral flow result. She said she took further precautions after being informed but continued with the event for a short period to hear their stories with the father's consent. 
It's unclear what precautions the UK Health Minister did take. She announced on social media, I should have immediately ended the meeting, and on reflection this was an error of judgement on my part. I fully recognise the importance of following the letter and spirit of the policies, so want to be upfront about what happened and to apologise for the mistake I made. The UK government's own rules state people must isolate immediately when they record a positive lateral flow result. The article was written by Angus Cochran. From The National, on Wednesday the 9th of February. News. Hope for Glasgow Nelson Mandela statue on anniversary of prison release. An article by Sarah Pacheroni, multimedia reporter. Scotland celebrated Nelson Mandela's release from prison on February 11th, 1990, with crowds gathering in Nelson Mandela Place in Glasgow and across other Scottish towns and cities. Now, the Nelson Mandela Scottish Memorial Foundation is marking the anniversary this year with a special nine-minute online video premiering at six o'clock on Friday. The video covers Scotland's links to the event, the background and the change it brought about. It's part of its drive for funds to build a statue of Mandela in Nelson Mandela Place with a long-term education project about Scotland's significant role in supporting the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. Glasgow was the first in the world to award Mr Mandela the freedom of the city in 1981, with Aberdeen, Dundee and Midlothian all following. He famously visited Glasgow to receive these in 1993 and said they made us realise that the world hadn't forgotten us. Brian Filling, chair of the foundation, said the video follows a well-received series covering significant events which has moved people to donate to help make the statue and its education programme a reality. We thank them and hope that support continues because we're nearly there. He stressed the importance of marking Scotland's historic role in fighting apartheid and the ongoing need to continue tackling inequality and racism in society. A permanent memorial to Nelson Mandela will not only remind Scots of their proud history of solidarity with the South African people, but it will also educate future generations to stand up against racism and prejudice wherever and whenever it rears its ugly head. That history of solidarity saw huge support from Scotland and its anti-apartheid movement with practical help, boycotts, campaigning, a year-long picket of the South African consulate, the renaming of the consulate's address as Nelson Mandela Place and the 30,000-strong Freedom March. Glasgow's first action in granting the freedom of the city had a worldwide effect and kick-started 2,264 mayors from 56 countries signing a declaration to the UN in 1981 demanding his release. The video will be released from 6pm on Friday the 11th of February where people can also donate and found on Facebook. An article written by Sarah Pacheroni. From The National on Wednesday the 9th of February. News. Scottish renewable energy industry could triple in size by 2030, report reveals. An article written by Emma O'Toole, multimedia journalist. Scottish Renewables Supply Chain Impact Statement revealed wind energy could see its capacity increase by 231% in the next eight years. The research looked at 32 firms working across Scotland's renewable energy industry, which employs 22,660 people. Organisations in the report have worked on and delivered many projects over the past year, including Scotland's first fifth-generation heating network, 
a pioneering zero-emission hydrogen fuel cell train project, multiple low-carbon transport hubs, the UK's largest community-owned hydro scheme, the world's most powerful tidal turbine, floating offshore wind farms, specialist renewably-powered remote monitoring solutions, and innovative artificial intelligence control systems. Claire Mack, chief executive of Scottish Renewables, said, Renewable energy projects across Scotland deliver many benefits to our urban, rural and island communities, providing low-carbon heat, transport and electricity, as well as creating employment opportunities for the people that live there. Scottish Renewables Supply Chain Impact Report highlights the positive impact renewable projects can have, and these case studies show the strength of Scottish suppliers is being recognised, not only in the Scottish market, but also globally. Both the onshore and offshore wind sectors, which provide so much of the economic benefit highlighted in this report, are pushing hard for huge growth, including from the 17 new offshore projects, which came through the recent Scotwind leasing round. That means the potential future pipeline of renewable energy projects in Scotland has never been stronger, and the time is now for both governments to work with industry to build on the successes highlighted in this statement by investing in innovation, infrastructure and technology to support supply chain development to make the most of these opportunities. Our native supply chain already boasts innovative startups and evolving established organisations which are working to create unique added value for green energy projects while also driving economic activity here in Scotland. The companies celebrated in the document demonstrate only a small proportion of the complex supply network required to deploy net-zero technologies and there is increasing opportunity on the horizon for further supply chain growth. An article written by Emma O'Toole. From The National, on Wednesday the 9th of February. Politics. SNP tell Labour compensation over minor strike convictions is a UK issue. An article by Gregor Young, journalist. It would be for the UK to decide if minors who are pardoned for historic convictions linked to strikes should receive compensation, Scotland's Justice Secretary has said. Keith Brown rebuffed calls for the Scottish Government to consider paying compensation as part of its plans to pardon minors convicted over strike action in the 1980s. Challenged by Labour's Richard Leonard about whether compensation should be paid for the injustices perpetrated on the minors, their communities but also on their families, Mr Brown said it was an issue for Westminster. He stressed that there's very little surviving evidence from police and court records from the time, so the Scottish Government was proposing a collective pardon for all those who qualify. Mr Brown argued that trying to introduce a compensation scheme could delay minors from being pardoned, was not within the Scottish Government's powers, and it was the UK Government who had responsibility for policing and the justice system at the time of the strikes. The Scottish Government is planning to pardon living and dead coal workers convicted of certain offences during the miners' strike of 1984 to 1985 as they attempted to prevent pit closures by Margaret Thatcher's Conservative Government. SNP MSP Fulton McGregor said he was very much in favour of compensation but now believed it shouldn't be considered alongside the pardons bill. Mr Brown stressed that employment and industrial relations are reserved to the UK so if the compensation is looking to compensate for loss of earnings, loss of pension or loss of other rights, then the Scottish Government wasn't party to this and wasn't in existence at the time. He added, We have and will continue to press the UK Government to hold a full public inquiry 
and that's the place where those kinds of issues should be discussed or addressed. An article by Gregor Young. You're listening to The National as published on Wednesday the 9th of February 2022. Comment. Kevin McKenna. Strategy favoured by UK political elites is emerging. By Kevin McKenna, columnist. A strategy has begun to emerge that's favoured by the UK's political elites. You might describe it as government by distraction. In the absence of anything resembling a clear and unambiguous means of addressing the country's most intractable problems, the UK government reverts to card tricks and folderols. You might reasonably maintain that this has always been the way of it. Certainly, for Conservative administrations to be elected so often, there must always be some form of jiggery-pokery in the works. A survey conducted five years ago by the Social Mobility Commission found that almost half the UK population considered themselves to be working class, with around one-third believing themselves to be middle class. Only 1% thought of themselves as upper class. Yet, since the end of the Second World War, the nation has elected a Conservative government much more often than a Labour one. It seems not to matter that almost every social improvement in the lives of Britain's working-class voters has been instigated by Labour and opposed by the Tories. The NHS, employment protection, minimum wages, state-funded education, trade unions and decent affordable housing. Or that all Conservative governments since Margaret Thatcher came to power in 1979 have sought to dismantle these milestones in social mobility. For a Conservative government to gain power and maintain it, a significant number of those whose primary interests they always oppose must somehow be duped into believing that actually the Tories work for them. In those periods when even this chimera won't hold, other ways must be found to maintain the Tory vote among working class people. That's when the UK Conservatives fall back on British values. This is a gaseous and amorphous creation. It's fuelled primarily by militarism, the promotion of the royal family to a degree that borders on fetishism and a sentimental belief in British cultural superiority. It helps too that since the dawn of universal suffrage, almost the entirety of the UK press has remained in the hands of a handful of super-rich families whose interests are best served by ensuring that a Conservative government is in power. Thus, when there is any possibility that a Labour government might seriously seek to rearrange the nation's priorities in favour of the many at the expense of the few, they are quickly forced into a retreat. Those who don't play the game are condemned as communists, extremists, economically illiterate and traitors to the cause of old England. For Labour to be electable, they need to be supine and docile. You imagine that when the future executive positions in UK Corp are being arranged by the Oxford University sorting hat, that some chap is compelled to take one for the team and volunteer for the Labour Party just to maintain the impression of democracy and choice. Even so, the alarms and excursions of the post-Brexit era in British politics have been defined by distraction, which is to say that very little of that which is truly meaningful to the lives of the majority in the UK is debated or taken seriously. Brexit itself was a three-year-long exercise in summoning the spirit of 18th century England. Even as the reality was beginning to bite, the pandemic arrived at just the right time for politicians of all stripes to subjugate everything to the spirit of national unity. The UK in this period floated on a sea of empathy and emotionalism. 
the warnings about the post-COVID cost of living crisis for the poorest in society were trailed almost from the beginning of the pandemic. Yet we seem to be more outraged about lockdown parties at Downing Street and, latterly, a scurrilous accusation against Sir Keir Starmer. The Labour leader was mildly jostled on Monday by a squadron of middle-class protesters who looked like they couldn't fight sleep. In Glasgow, we would call this foreplay. There were some unpleasant imprecations thrown in his direction. It was described as a disgrace and an outrage as the middle-class pearl clutchers of Twitter vied to express their indignation. On the same day as this was all happening, the official year of celebrations for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee kicked off. All our fears about what this might entail are already being realised. The BBC especially will regress to a state of royal household serfdom. This was typified by a BBC breakfast presenter telling us yesterday that the Duchess of Cambridge is to read a bedtime story on CBeebies. As the presenter, presumably a journalist, told us this, she added, as if she already hadn't got enough to do. The BBC will effectively become royal lackeys throughout 2022 and pay millions for the privilege. Meanwhile, the developing crisis on the Russia-Ukraine border is moving glacially. This means there's more than enough time for all kinds of Western politicians to ponce over there at our expense and be pictured in large rooms with yellow and blue flags. Boris Johnson will extract every ounce out of this and Vladimir Putin seems to be doing all he can to accommodate him just as he did with Donald Trump. And no wonder. The wily Russian president knows a roaster when he sees one and will use every artifice to keep them in power and make him look good. There's a warning in this too for the SNP. The Tories will seek to get re-elected on a strategy of peak distraction. On past evidence, they have every chance of succeeding. It's important that the wider yes movement in Scotland doesn't allow the SNP to succumb to the same subterfuges. We can do without Alan Smith and Stuart Macdonald posing as world statesmen in Ukraine. These MPs were elected to further the cause of independence, not enhance their future employment prospects with NATO and the British security services. The ongoing debate about who will fund national insurance contributions post-independence also masks something quite depressing. It's almost eight years since the first referendum on Scottish independence. I'd kind of assumed that this was time enough for the SNP to have dealt with this by commissioning independent research and scholarship, but then I also assumed we'd have a detailed perspective on currency and how you can become a member of the EU without having your own, and post-independence border arrangements with England. As she's done often in the last few years, Nicola Sturgeon has told us that she'll soon be announcing an independence prospectus slash blueprint slash route map. Splendid! We can only hope that perhaps she has indeed been working away quietly on these issues, because these are the ones on which independence will stand or fall. This article was by Kevin McKenna. You're listening to The National as published on Wednesday the 9th of February 2022. Comment. Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh. Scottish independence pension conundrum can be answered simply by Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh, columnist. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, late of Picardy Place, Edinburgh, knew how to tell a tale and make the driest of facts dance. One of the most intriguing of the Sherlock Holmes casebook is Silver Blaze. This is about the disappearance of a famous horse the night before a big race and the associated murder of the horse's trainer. Holmes solves the mystery by spotting the curious fact that no one he has spoken to in his entire investigation had heard any barking from the watchdog during the night. 
Thus, the dog that didn't bark entered the lexicon as illustrating the significance of the non-event. Pensions policy in the first independence referendum was such an issue, and that mystery is easily solved. Back then, the Scottish Government had produced a detailed pensions paper setting out the position and was well prepared. In contrast, the UK position was confused, with the then Pensions Minister Stephen Webb struggling to explain himself in front of a Commons committee. At first, Webb was definite that the UK government would meet its contractual obligations to those who had contributed and gained pensions entitlements up until the point of independence. Then, with the heed products of the No campaign blowing a collective gasket, he issued a clarification statement seeking to muddy the waters. The strength of the Scottish position in 2014 was that it was made clear that the Scottish Government would guarantee Scottish pension payments, come what may, as was succinctly explained at page 144 of the White Paper. Thus, although the naysayers still did their level best to scare the elderly and the infirm, pensions were not a dominating issue of the 2014 campaign because the yes side were well armed and the no side were not. Of course, this clarity of yes information didn't stop the doorstep scaremongering or Daily Mail hysteria, but it did draw its campaign teeth. The pensions dog basically did not bark. Contrast that with this last week, when the SNP have struggled to be clear on pensions and left a number of open goals for unionists. Even old Project Fear himself, Blair McDougall, has found a new lease of virtual life reconstituting himself online, almost like Count Dracula in a Dusty Hammer horror movie. Many of us could have been where Ian Blackford found himself last week, floundering in an interview and there but for the grace of God, etc. However, if the groundwork had been done in the expectation of fighting an imminent referendum, then he would not have been caught flat-footed, even by the most malicious of mainstream media. At the same time the SNP were getting themselves into a fankle over pensions, it was revealed that twice as many civil servants are working on the Gender Recognition Act as on our National Prospectus for Independence. This does not lend confidence that the government recognised the urgency of getting all pro-ND spokespeople properly informed. Indeed, Sherlock Holmes would have regarded the lack of resources into elementary homework as evidence to support a deduction that this lack of preparation could betray a lack of serious intent. Some damage has been done by the impenchant imbroglia. Unionist journalists and commentators have piled in with barely suppressed glee. Even Tories, bruised and battered by their own self-inflicted wounds, have taken some time off to dance up and down on the discomfiture of the SNP Westminster leader and the First Minister. However, at least the confusion brought back to the campaign for the array of bloggers and commentators who have done the independence thinking and actually done the work. The answer to the pensions conundrum is comparatively simple. Yes, Westminster has a contractual obligation which it currently meets to over a million UK pensioners living overseas, but it is also a fact that pensions are financed from current taxation. It is also true that all of the gargantuan UK debt liability legally lies with the Treasury. Thus, if Westminster plays politics with pensions and risks becoming an international pariah, then all the Scotland side needs to do in negotiations is adjust any contribution to UK debt accordingly and downwards. In any and all events, UK state pensions for those living in Scotland at the time of independence will be guaranteed to be paid through the Scottish Government and over time enhanced from their present miserly level. That last bit is the same assurance from 2014 when the pensions dog did not bark. 
let me draw on Corinthians for a final thought. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? The worst aspect of the last week is that it suggests a fundamental lack of necessary independence preparation by the SNP Green government. Having been ambushed on state pensions, expect similar snares to be laid on currency, borders, trade and the timescale of any readmission to the European Union. Luckily, in the next few weeks a new publication will appear which will place a different perspective on these matters and which is aimed to give confidence to the Yes movement as well as information to the people. This article was by Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh. Recorded from the National on the 9th of February 2022, from the Culture section, Scottish Literary Gems, What are the Best Books Set in Scotland? by Beth Whitelaw. The National has compiled a list of five of the best books set in Scotland. Featured are books old and new, classic and contemporary, as well as a mix of lengths, genres and voices to appeal to every kind of reader. Whether you're looking for a thoughtful gift for someone you love, or to tuck in for the night with a novel of your own, there's something here for everyone. O Caledonia, 1991, Elizabeth Barker. O Caledonia is a vivid, atmospheric and rich novel offering readers a veritable feast of delights. Opening with a murder scene, 16-year-old Janet lay sprawled at the bottom of the great stone staircase of her Highland family home, Okinosa. We quickly learn that Janet's murder is neither a great surprise nor grief to anyone. Only her beloved pet Jack Daw mourns her presence. The rest is a strange and enchanting portrait of the 16 misunderstood years Janet got to live, coming of age in a crumbling manner where her love of literature and language and the landscape offers her what her remote and indifferent family do not. Being journalist and writer Elizabeth Barker's only novel, it must be be treasured and read slowly. And the Land Lay Still, 2010, James Robertson. James Robertson's epic 600-plus page novel is difficult to explain in a few sentences. It's the story of Scotland, a meandering and sweeping portrait of the modern history of the country, told through the eyes of Scotland's born and bred immigrants and sleazy journalists and their politicians, the downtrodden and the well-provided-for, the people that dare to dream of change and those that cling to the past. An impeccably well-researched and generous novel, this is one for any keen readers you know that are on the fence but independence. Shoggy Bain, 2020, Douglas Stewart. This book is the story of Hugh Shoggy Bain's childhood and adolescence. Set amongst a smouldering post-Thatcherite Glasgow landscape, he navigates an early life with an abusive and mostly absent taxi driver father and an alcoholic mother, Agnes Bain. Both a shining light and imploding backlight in Shoggy's life. This book is a commitment to the expected. It's a tale of cycles of addiction and the fragile sanctuary of episodes of sobriety. But its success lies in the way it tells you a story you already know the end to. But it remains so utterly surprising, joyous and compelling along the way. One of the best debuts you'll ever read. Luckin' Booth, 2021, Jenny Fagan. Luckin' Booth is truly unique, a strange gothic and addictive look into the life of a vastly different set of occupants in number 10 Luckin' Booth Close. Spanning the course of a century, the book is split into three parts, which each contains three stories, one for each tenement floor in ascending order. We move forward in time from 1910, where the devil's daughter is sold to the tenement landlord to provide a child for the couple. A tragedy ensues, leaving a lingering curse on the building that leaves its mark on future tenants in vastly different ways. Trumpet, 1998, Jackie Kay. When renowned jazz musician Joss Moody dies of an unspecified illness, 
His wife and son are left to face the public's reaction to a post-mortem discovery that this talented man was in fact a woman. Trumpet is told through various narrative lenses of people close to Joss, his drummer wife and only son who intends to write an exposing biography in revenge of his dad's well-kept secret. More than 20 years after publication, Trumpet remains as modern, relevant and tender today for its bold and imaginative exploration of gender identity, race and intersectionality. That article was by Beth Whitelaw. The National, February 10. Malcolm Offord shared the firm's directorship with man hunted by Interpol. Report by Xander Richards. The unelected peer made a Scotland office minister by Boris Johnson was formerly director of a firm alongside an international fugitive being hunted by Interpol the National can reveal. Malcolm Offord, who was elevated to the House of Lords and given a ministerial role after failing to win a seat in Holyrood, was the director of Cashmaster International Limited until November 2021. He had taken a non-executive director's role after having bought the firm in 2014. During his time at the company's head, Offord saw the firm hire and then promote to director Matt Jager, a fraudster being hunted by Interpol. It was Jager's promotion to director and his subsequent listing on company's house that led to his eventual capture and prosecution, the National has been told. Jager had reportedly been very hesitant about getting involved in any social media drives which the company was eager to promote. In 2017, a year after the Scotland office said the firm had dismissed him for gross misconduct, Jager was sentenced to 12 months behind bars after he pled guilty to defrauding a Northern Irish woman and her family of thousands of pounds. He had claimed to have a ranch in Texas where he would marry the woman and took payments totaling £4,560 for flights that never materialised. The crimes had been committed in 2010, after which he went on the run for six years, evading extensive police searches, according to a court report from the time. Interpol was also made aware of a vast amount of similar allegations about Jager in England, Scotland and the United States, according to the Derry Journal. The court was told that further victims had not made complaints because of their shame and embarrassment. In 2015, Jager was made a director of Offords Cashmaster International Limited. The National understands that he had been working for the firm for under a year and that none of the hot leads he had claimed to be able to source had materialised. There is no suggestion that anyone in the company knew about Jager's offence when they took him on. Jager reportedly spun a similar line while at the Scots firm to the fraud for which he was convicted claiming he had sold up after being co-owner of a software firm running seismic surveys for the oil and gas business in Texas. 
He also allegedly claimed to have houses on both United States coasts and a fiancé on the eastern seaboard. The National was told of Jager's time at Cashmaster International. He could talk the talk, but not deliver the results. A spokesperson for Offord said, Matt Jager had no criminal record at the time he was hired by Cashmaster International Limited in 2015. He was dismissed by the company after less than a year for gross misconduct. The company was later made aware he was the subject of a police investigation. As a non-day executive director of the company, Lord Offord was not involved in the recruitment of Matt Jager. The judge in the case, which saw Jager sentenced, said it was rare to see someone so lacking in remorse and humanity towards other fellow humans. This man cares about one person in this world, and that is himself. He has shown himself to be a liar, a cheat, and a dishonest rogue. Report by Xander Richards. Reported from the National on the 10th of February 2022. From the Culture section, Tom Devine renews attack on Council over Dundas Plaque's bad history by Nansport. Scotland's leading historian has fired another broadside at Edinburgh City Council's refusal to remove an inaccurate plaque at the foot of one of the capital's most prominent landmarks. Sir Professor Sir Tom Devine hit out after a renowned New Zealand academic called the plaque, which describes the role of Henry Dundas in abolition, patently absurd, erroneous and bad history, and said the council had a moral duty to remove it. Otherwise, the city faces the grave charge in international opprobrium of falsifying history in a public monument, said Angela McCarthy, Professor of Scottish and Irish History and Director of the Centre of Global Migrations at the University of Otago in Dunedin. Despite her intervention, the Council is adamant the plaque should remain, claiming it is factually accurate, a claim that is in sense divine. Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Edinburgh, who edited the first ever academic study of Scotland's deep connections to the slave system. McCarthy is the latest academic to enter the increasingly acrimonious row over the recently installed plaque at the foot of the towering Henry Dundas monument in the city centre. The controversy has escalated in recent weeks, with divine threatening legal action over being branded a racist by Professor Jeff Palmer, Scotland's first black professor. Palmer is also accused professor of political and historical sociology at Edinburgh University. Jonathan Heron is being part of an academic racist gang after he called Edinburgh's slavery project strangely superficial. The plaque was put up following Palmer's appointment as leader of the City Council's review of statues, street names and buildings with potential links to slavery. However, Devine objected to the claim that Dundas was exclusively instrumental in deferring the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade when he was Home Secretary in 1792. The plaque states that it is dedicated to the memory of the more than half a million Africans whose enslavement was a consequence of Henry Dundas's actions. Since the sign went up in 2020, Devine has argued for its removal, on the grounds that it is fundamentally erroneous, and the delay in abolishing the slave trade was not solely due to Dundas's actions, which some regarded as a way of eventually getting the abolition bill through Parliament in the face of widespread opposition. Devine's arguments have now been backed by McCarthy in a paper for the Scottish Affairs Journal. She claims her research into original sources and the work of various historians shows there were many factors leading to the delay of abolition before 1807. 
McCarthy concludes that allegations that Henry Dundas was solely responsible for the enslavement of more than half a million Africans, as asserted on the Dundas plaque in Edinburgh, that the abolition would have been achieved sooner than 1807 without his opposition, are fundamentally mistaken. She says that despite claims Dundas worked with West Indian interests to stave off abolition as long as possible, historical realities were much more nuanced and complex in the slave trade abolition debates of the 1790s and early 1800s, and their focus on the role and significance of one politician suggests. McCarthy adds Sir Tom Devine's articles in the press last year arguing that broader forces were much more important than the role of one individual politician were criticised in public and on social media by some activists. However, the research and conclusions presented here fully support his interpretations. However, Edinburgh City Council leader Adam McVeigh said, The new wording for the plaque at Melville Monument is factually accurate and was agreed by councillors in June 2020, following input from a panel of representatives and academic checks. The ongoing work of the Independent Slavery and Colonialism Legacy Review Group is extremely important not only to be honest about the city's history, the good, the bad and the ugly, but also to better understand the impact on Edinburgh today. He added that the findings of a public consultation would be presented to the Council in the upcoming months. In response, Devine said that McVeigh's bold assertion that the wording of the notorious plaque is factually accurate was worthless. It comes without a shred of evidence and has been demolished by superb forensic historical analysis of an internationally renowned New Zealand scholar, he added. Devine added that the peer-reviewed article was soon to be published online, and when it was, the public humiliation of McVeigh and his acolytes will be complete. In the interim, let us see if he has the courage and honesty to reveal the names of this illustrious panel of representatives who agreed on the text of the revised plaque and what academic checks were carried out on it, said Devine. Then we will all know whether his assertions have, been, have any value at all. If he does not do so, then his credibility on the issue is shredded. That article was by Nansport. From the National, Thursday the 10th of February 2022, from the sports section. Ange Postacoglu baffled by Aberdeen fan incident with Celtic keeper Joe Hart by David Irvin. Joe Hart has already become a favourite among the Celtic support, but last night it was an Aberdeen supporter who shared his admiration for the keeper. The match at Pitodri was momentarily halted last night when a fan sprinted from the stands towards Hart for a selfie before scarpering back into the crowd. The bizarre incident left both Hart and manager Ange Postacoglu baffled. The Celtic boss explained, I think we were all baffled. It was like he had a free pass because he just wandered off and got back to his seat. Fair play to him, he's obviously got some special pass that allows him to do that. But Postacoglu insisted he's not a fan of fan incidents because of the unknown nature of intentions. However, he conceded it was harmless enough at Pitadri. I don't like that because I always fear that you just don't know what's coming. You don't want players to react to that or get involved. At the end of the day, it was harmless enough, over-exuberance. We were all a bit baffled by his entry and exit. He's obviously got some all-access pass that none of us have. That article was by David Irving. From The National, Thursday the 10th of February 2022, from the Sports Section. FIFA to fund groundbreaking research into women's football by Gregor Young. FIFA is to fund groundbreaking research into the history of women's football in Scotland. 
Sports historian Dr Fiona Skillen of Glasgow Caledonian University has netted a prestigious FIFA research scholarship to chart the early history of the game in this country. Provided by the World Games Governing Body through the International Centre for Sports Studies, CIES, the award will fund the first in-depth study of the origin of the women's game from the 1880s to 1939. Dr Skillen, Senior Lecturer in History at GCU, will travel to the FIFA Museum and Archives in Zurich, Switzerland, to examine minute books, correspondence and records relating to women's football in Scotland and the Scottish FA as part of the project. The study will look at the barriers and restrictions faced by the early female players, the role of the First World War and the impact of the English FA's 1921 quotes ban, close quotes, on organised matches. Skillen said there have been no detailed studies of the early history of women's football in Scotland. This award from FIFA stroke CIES is recognition of how important the history of the game is. Insights from the past can help us to understand and shape the development of the contemporary women's game. The latest award will build on a pilot study carried out last year, funded by the GCU Research Reboot Fund. Rich Richard Mabriarty of the Scottish Football Museum said, We are delighted that Fiona has an opportunity to undertake this groundbreaking research into the history of women's football in Scotland. This will hugely benefit our knowledge of the game's past and comes at a great, at a great time as we prepare to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the first official match involving the Scotland women's national team later this year. The Scottish Football Museum is currently hosting an exhibition on the hidden history of the trailblazing interwar side Rutherglen Ladies FC, based on research carried out by Dr Skillen and the football historian Steve Bolton. This article was by Gregor Young from the National Thursday the 10th of February 2022 from the sports section. Joe Aribo reveals Rangers approach change after Celtic debrief by Christopher Jack. Joe Aribo reckons Rangers have been rejuvenated by their renewed approach in the aftermath of an old firm debrief last week. The champions produced their worst performance of the campaign as they were crushed 3-0 by Celtic and lost the lead in the Premiership title race. But the response has been emphatic in recent days as Hearts and Hibernian have been beaten and seven goals scored without reply at Ibrox. Rangers remain one point adrift of their old firm rivals heading into their Scottish Cup clash with Annan Athletic and Europa League glamour tie away to Borussia Dortmund in the coming days. And Aribo has been encouraged by their levels over the last 180 minutes of league action, as Giovanni van Bronckhorst's side have started to make amends for their derby disaster. Aribo said, the boys are buzzing with that. We knew we wanted to start fast and play with intensity, and that is what we did. It is important to react when you have a defeat. We are happy with how the last two games have gone keeping clean sheets and scoring lots of goals. That is what we want to do. We just had to take what had gone on in that game, look back on it 
and look back at the performance and say that certain things were not acceptable. That is what we had to do. We have got in our opponents' faces, made it difficult for them and not let them be comfortable in matches. That is what we have to do all the time. It is always said before a football match in the dressing room. If we give 100% and work hard, the talent will definitely come through. It is part and parcel of football. You can't just have the right to play, you have to earn the right to play. That article was by Christopher Jack. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.